Today we are talking with leadership development expert and Crestcom faculty member, Ron Crossland. Ron has worked with talent from the boiler room to the boardroom, helping individuals, teams, and organizations develop better leaders, create more innovation, forge better internal and external relationships, and inspire greater performance. He has advanced the understanding of leadership through original and secondary research, blending science, art, data, and philosophy with theory and practicality. Today, we explore how innovation is key to great leadership and how to embrace innovative thinking to grow your organization. It's Jen DeWall, and I am so excited to be here today interviewing Ron Crossland. For those that don't know Ron Crossland, he is an organizational consultant, he's an author, and he's also an educator with over 30 years of experience within the leadership and development space. On behalf of Crosscom and the Leadership Habit Podcast, Ron, thank you so much for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. This is a, it's a fabulous spring day here in Cincinnati. And I can't think of a nicer group to be talking with. Oh, good. Well, Ron, for those that may not know you, I know as part of the Crestcom family, you are one of our expert faculty members and you helped really educate and help people develop compelling and unique innovative strategies. So you were really that driver on one of our recent innovation modules that we created. For those that may not be familiar with you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I can. You kind of set it up in the intro. I became a student of leadership back very early in my career when I was working for AT&T, very large scale telecom here in the United States, and actually was sent off on a project to study leadership because it was at a critical juncture in AT&T's life where they were being broken up into smaller companies and everyone was worried about what would happen. So a buddy of mine and I actually had the luxury of spending a year interviewing all the known leadership gurus across the United States at that time. We met everybody and talked with them. We were formulating our own module, our own ideas about leadership. We had begun thinking about writing a book on what we've learned. And we went to AT&T and proposed a leadership institute within AT&T that, that could be turned into a profit center. That literally, not only would we educate AT&T managers on the subject, but that we would then actually be able to sell that same curricula to other companies that would come into our Leadership Institute and learn leadership uh, from us. And uh, we were turned down flatly. They said, no, nice idea, but we don't want to do that. And so my partner and I said, well, okay. And we quit and started our own business. That's how I got started in the subject uh, of leadership. And I've been uh, developing small businesses uh, to deliver a wide variety of different leadership topics uh, ever since then. The last uh, 12 years, since 2007, I've been in my own private practice, but actually have accelerated some of my research. So I think I'm actually smarter now than I was even 12 years ago about this topic. Oh, absolutely, right? You have incredible experiences. Out of curiosity, who are some of the people that you were able to interview during that time? Oh, uh, people like Rosabeth Moskanner and uh, Tom Peters and... Uh, a uh, wide, wide variety, actually, of uh, CEOs at the time, other authors from the West Coast. I mean, some of them might even forget their names at this, at this state uh, because they were big names at the time, but they were not lasting names. I would have to say probably the person that influenced me the most, though, was the former 
Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare. I actually worked for Lyndon Johnson as president. Oh, wow. So, uh, yeah, he took me on as a, as a protege for a while. I, he was my mentor for a while, yeah, on this topic. And he, was prob- he probably still is the number one leadership authority in uh, public sector leadership. And uh, a fabulous man, former Olympic swimmer and a psychologist. And a wonderful uh, guy that worked for uh, several different presidents in different capacities over the years. So, uh, so those would be the cast of characters. So we really, I tell you, it was a, a luxury year of study. I would uh, say that for the folks that are interested in listening to this podcast, uh, the way that you could replicate that experience is simply go talk to people that you know about how they learned how to be a leader. <sighs> And they don't have to be famous. They don't have to have written a book. They don't have to know anything. Just go interview people once in a while. You'll be amazed at the stuff you learn. Absolutely. I like to believe in the quote, every person you meet is your teacher and your student. And it, it is amazing just by having a conversation. If you, you know, kind of take out that pressure of being perfect or showing up in a certain way and you just truly engage in a dialogue, you can really learn some valuable lessons that you can apply to your own life. You know, Absolutely, you can. Out of curiosity, Ron, why, why leadership development? Why is that important to you? Uh, well, how psychological do you want to get? I, mean, uh, I, I, I can tell you the public story or the private story. The public story is I came of age in my own management career at a point in time when there was huge change in North America. In the middle 80s was the engine where uh, outsourcing first started to pronounce itself. Globalization became a topic. And so leadership, was, uh, leadership had exploded as a popular topic. Everyone was writing about it. Everybody wanted to know it because two, two important things are happening. One was that it was a growth period. So whenever there's growth period, people are investing in, in leadership development and their people. That, that's a trend that's always true. During times of contraction, I lose my shirt. During times of expansion, I've got more work than I can take, right? Uh, the second reason, uh, though, was globalization. The, the very thing that is so popular in politics right now was the thing that drove the leadership explosion of the 80s and 90s. Because we didn't know the real scientific answer, the scholastic academic answer to the question, can you take a leader from one country and put them in another country and actually make it work? And we were fascinated by what that meant and could you actually make that happen? Uh, and so I was living simply in a time when it was literally in the air and I got addicted to it. Yeah. Well, and it, like that is actually one of the neatest things about leadership development or even working with working for Crestcom, knowing that we work to develop leaders all around the world. That as much as people may see, you know, cultural differences as something that really differentiates us, we actually have so many of similar challenges, right? How do we how do we innovate? How do we communicate in a way that builds relationships and connection and has influence. I I love that about leadership development because it is a bridge where we can all see that we do and are faced with similar challenges and we're not that different. You have just basically summarized the field of research on this topic. Of all the talents that a leader can develop over the course of their lifetime, the one that is the most portable 
meaning that it travels from any from one country uh, from one company to another or from one country to another is the interpersonal skill set that a leader develops and one of those one of those wedges of of interpersonal skill sets is your leadership abilities that is the most durable and big, think about it, our common humanity uh, as you study leadership there are cultural differences in how it's expressed in some some fun ways but the essence of it bottom of it is the same. We're all human beings, trust, communication, inspiration, helping people motivate people. All those things are true if, uh, for leadership around the world. There are some cultural nuances to that, but they're, but they're minor compared to the main themes. I guess, Ron, I'm already loving this conversation so much because it's, I mean, it's just great when you can connect with other people that see leadership as this opportunity to bring people together. And it's it's really powerful. So I love this. But I know that's not why you're here to talk about our you know, mutual love of leadership. We're here to talk about innovation today. And innovation, because you know, innovation and its challenges um, and its you know, lovely products that result from innovation is all around us. And so we're going to talk about innovation and how that can impact the way that you look at it in your own organization, how you could potentially improve processes or your approaches to innovation. So let's dive right in and help people figure out how they can really grasp that concept of innovation and really develop or further develop that innovative mindset. So Ron, could you talk a little bit about the difference between everyday innovation and long-term innovation? I'd love to. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite ways to get the whole topic started. Uh, this word innovation has this big sort of connotation, especially in business. Oh, we've got to practice innovation and we've got to come up with new things. And it's the driver of all of our future business growth. And there's a lot of truth to that. But it implies that it takes a closeted set of specialists over in some laboratory someplace doing some stuff. And for a lot of small businesses, it's sort of like, we don't got none of that. And the reality is, is that everyday leadership is the fundamental aspect of the higher level leadership. And what I mean by everyday leadership is uh, kind of comes back to our common humanity. Human beings possess this great knack for figuring things out and coming up with band-aid type solutions to everyday little problems. Think about, think about the last time, you know, you broke a shoelace and you didn't have time to replace it. You figured out a way to what? Deal with that through the day, right? That's individual genius at work. Or, or you ran out of some paper or you didn't have enough donuts for the meeting or whatever. You, you, you come up with a creative, quick little solution to that. And that's what I mean by everyday leadership. We are naturally two kinds of things, storytellers and problem solvers. That's fundamental to all human beings. And what, what stories do we like most to tell? The problems that we solve. Let me tell you about what happened to me the other day, blah, 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 and how I fixed it. Whether it's about relationships, whether it's about the, the coffee service, whether it's about the truck that broke down, it doesn't make any difference. Uh, this is, these are the stories. They're embedded in the fabric of our lives because this is how our brains uh, uh, work. So I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of this, okay? I was thinking ahead about a couple of recent experiences I had that might be pertinent to this topic. I uh, have a group of people that I'm working with uh, here in the United States. It's a small company rapidly becoming a large company. 
and they have people scattered across the country, and we bring them together quarterly, some of them quarterly, for a little offsite to try to build some social bonds and stuff like that. And for a while, we were doing it in Chicago. We, uh, the CEO of the company always wanted to take us to this special restaurant that he loved because he grew up in Chicago, and it was his favorite pizzeria and stuff like that. And we would march into his favorite pizza place. And that pizza place, well-known in the Chicago area, had a very precise way of doing things. And they marched you in, and they lined you up, and they served food the way that they have been serving it for at least 20 years, right? And it was nice, and it was efficient, unless a glitch happened. And if a glitch happened, then it slowed the service down. And that, the last time I was there, that particular night, there were three small glitches in a row that happened. And it took us probably an extra hour to feed the 25 people that we had. And we missed out on the next thing that we were going to do because of the glitches. They couldn't handle exceptions to their very precise laid-down rules, right? Fast forward. The last time I met with this group was back in February. We've changed our location from Chicago to San Diego. We went to a very nice Italian restaurant there that was suggested by some friends of ours uh, out in, that, in, in the San Diego area. And family owned. I mean, this is an Italian family. This, I mean, the, the sons of the Italian owner kind of family, right? And, and the sisters and the grandmothers and the, and, the, and the other cousins that work at this place, right? We showed up. We had made reservations. Special place outdoors. Uh, it was a little chilly, so they had the big... Uh, heating things, you know, that keep the guests warm and stuff in your dining al fresco in the evening. And they had lost our reservation. Oh, no. They, nothing was set up in advance. They didn't even know who we were. And, 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 and like that. But so happened. They said, okay, but you're here now. And what happened? They immediately took three or four people quickly out of the back and off the front, immediately started setting up chairs and tables like that, talking with us the entire time. And in fact, myself and a couple of other people said, how can we assist? And they said, come and tell us how you want this design. How do you want the tables arranged? Who's going to sit where? How many people you got? And, we, and they actually enjoined us in helping set up and getting ready for our guests. And within 10 minutes, we were ready to seek and start taking orders of 35 people. Holy cow. Off the cuff, immediate innovation. Why? Their customer service innovation was, we don't turn people away, we bring them into the family. Think about that as an everyday way of thinking about innovation. We don't have a standardized process. We have a way of thinking about, you're our guests in our home. And that is everyday thinking about innovation. That leads you to different kinds of solutions. It makes you think outside the box on a regular basis because you're not bound by what? a prescribed process that everyone must follow. And if you have any deviations from it, then the process collapses. And so I, I use those as examples of how everyday uh, uh, innovation, everyday thinking about problem solving, which is what innovation is, uh, how, how it can actually occur. And at the second restaurant, they had an atmosphere where it was, let's just pitch in and solve this as opposed to, how can we go back and fix our broken process? Yeah, it sounds like it was much adaptive innovation. Very, very adaptive, very much on the fly. And because of that, and because and the, and the guys helping us out, they were jovial and they were doing the over-the-top Italian singing while they were doing it. 
and they made it an event rather than a grumbling request. Oh my God, we've got 35 unexpected people. How are we going to can what stuff like that? They made it like, Oh, you got some friends over. Hey, let's break out some more. See the difference for any company in the world to look at innovation through that lens versus the other is that no, we must standardize a process. Now there are some things that standardization of process is essential. I want a plumber that knows what they're doing, right? right. I don't want I don't have, I, I don't want a couple of Italian pizza makers coming over. Well, I think I can fix this. I want a plumber that knows what they're doing, right? But I also want a, a plumber that says, ah, you know, you've got a kind of a screwy setup here. Mm. I can figure out how to fix that. I want both things, and most of us do. We want we want our products and services be friendly and accessible, and we want things to work well, especially when there are exceptions. And so uh, I bring that to your attention as, uh, as examples of everyday uh, leadership, uh, everyday innovation thinking. So if I could even simplify what everyday innovation is, not that it's meant to be simplified, but really it's to say that when you are faced with any new problem that you receive is an opportunity to look at things in a different way. Right. It's not just saying that they're okay. Here's the problem. Here's my response. That process of this is what we follow. Right. It's okay. Well, this is could be the same problem, but how could I look at it differently so I could actually resolve it or stop it from the problem? No, precisely. And so then long term innovation is then just that long term approach. Like, would you say about the results that you want to achieve or like? what that end goal is and your strategy to get there? Long, long-term innovation uh, is a higher order of thinking. It's, uh, it's not about how do we solve the everyday problem that confronts us, like you got some unexpected guests. So if we take a restaurant example, for example, it, it, you can go this way. Uh, how are we going to be able to continue to feed people high-quality food when we can't source it? How do we think about how we make connections with maybe local farmers versus uh, sort of the large scale uh, uh, food delivery people that we have to rely on also so that we have a combination of steady supply of quality in this, in this case, say proteins, but we want fresh garden seasonal vegetables and things of that nature. And we, and we want them from a local environment well, that requires long-term one thinking about which farmers do we actually uh, uh, get together with? And what happens if those farmers come and go? Because the small-scale farmer is very, very mobile uh, in, in most places around the world. How do, we develop, how do we develop a schema that allows us to do that? Oh, and oh, by the way, exactly do we want to uh, just own this restaurant for the duration of the patriarch? Or do we want to turn this into a franchise? Or do we want this to become... Uh, a multiple location family business, or how do we think about those kinds of things? Well, it requires a different set of skills, and you have to focus on innovation at a higher level, which requires, and this is part of uh, part of my thing about innovation, is that that level of innovation requires more risk, because you're risking time and you're risking money to experiment. And experimentation for long-term uh, innovation is the, the thing that most of us are afraid of especially in small businesses, because for small businesses, it's a high ratio of cost uh, to sort of profitability that you have to invest in to figure out if something's going to work. 
But those individuals that, that figure that out, that are willing to invest in a, a riskier environment, tend to be the ones that then are more successful at growing a business on a, a larger scale than a 10 to 15 or 20 person firm. Right. That's sort of that sort of way of thinking. So if I could say to our leaders out there, if you want to practice having that innovative mindset, it really boils down to two things. Asking yourself, what is another way to approach this problem or challenge, right? There's always a new way to look at it. And what's the vision that you're aspiring for? Do you have a vision? Or are you just kind of going through the motions, right? Like, where do you really, really want to be? And how can you put that vision and articulate it in a way that's compelling, that inspires action, and where it it feels that it's the reality. So you can see all of those steps and actions that you're taking, how they contribute to bringing that vision to life. Absolutely. And uh, vision and innovation are an intertwined concept. I love the way that you're going with this. When I was the head of some small businesses, right, we regularly had discussions about what do we want to try to achieve in the future as a group? And how are we going to get there? Which begs the question, how? How will we do it? That's where innovation comes in. Vision is about the end state. Innovation is about how we're then going to figure out how we're going to reach that end state, right? And, and so we regularly did that. And, and this is the thing that I would encourage all small business owners to consider. You have to get your employees together on a regular basis and say, how can we innovate? How can we do things differently? And it can go from the everyday experience of, well, gee, could we simply have more flexible work hours? Kind of a, you know, kind of a chronic dilemma that small business owners have. To, do we really want to spend the money to open up down the street or in another city or move from this location to another location? Things that, that because of the nature of infrastructure, cost more money. Now, how do you how do you get people involved in that? Well, you've got to involve them in the decision making. When they are involved, they will exert the effort because it's now a collective gain or loss. But if the owner is simply the one that makes these decisions, well, then, you know, it's usually the owner that loses or gains big. And sometimes employees get left out of that mix. And you know what happens? Then the work feels like a job, not like something they're invested in. They go to work for something to do rather than to do something, which is a much different mindset. And they need to see themselves as a part of that solution. As you said, that decision maker, my, you know, I can add value to this and I want to add value to this because I know the outcome that we're striving for and I want to be a part of that. But it has to be that collective effort. We have to offer those invitations to people because not one person can really be the driver of an innovative effort. You know, that's true. One of the things that we wanted to talk about was innovation as a risk assessment. What does that even mean? Innovation as a risk assessment? I don't even know well, that. Uh, <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, it's just what I was saying. We got to open up. We're going to open up. Uh, we're going to remodel our restaurant. We're going to open up another division. We're going to. We're going to replicate our um, auto body shop across town and say in a large city, we're going to have two locations. Well, that is an investment in what? 
Think about your things. It's not just the cost of finding some new property, finding a new building, buying new equipment, all those capital risks, right, that you take. But it's also probably the number one risk is who's going to staff it? Who's going to be in charge now that I can't be in charge of both places? How are we going to coordinate our efforts? How are we going to increase our overall business as opposed to suddenly over a little bit of time see each other as competitors, location A versus location B? And I've seen that happen in small businesses where when they expand that first division, where they expand and have two locations of something, they actually become rivals because they're at war with each other, uh, squabbling in their interpersonal relationships. So innovation is risk-taking, is risking all the, in all those arenas, cap, uh, the economics of capital and the financing of that, and also uh, the, the risks of, uh, who, uh, of hierarchy, who's going to be in charge, who's going to lead, how are those things going to happen, how it affects hiring and firing, all of those kinds of uh, uh, complex things. Because I have to tell you, in small business, uh, um, uh, small business loyalty is probably a higher value feature than in large scale businesses. Right. Uh, and uh, loyalty manifests itself in a wide variety of ways. And probably uh, every, every fundamentally terrific, like, you know, Harvard case study example of a small business going big is when the owner-operator of the business has allowed their own people more judgment calls in how to innovate in the business. You know, we ought to have this machine instead of this machine. Or a client brings in a problem uh, that is too difficult for us to sell, uh, to serve. But then a couple of guys say, you know, give us a chance. Maybe we can figure out a way to solve their problem. We don't know how to do it just yet, but we'll take it as a crack, boss, if you'll give us the chance. And so what is it, you know, how many of those risks are you willing to take to expand your people's abilities and knowledge? And what happens if three or four of them fail, but then one of them succeeds? You've now got what? Happy people, excited people, and another problem that you can now sell to the next client, another solution to, to their problem. And so the risk assessment is around what's your tolerance for failure? Nothing new is ever done without multiple failures ahead of it. Uh, what was the, uh, give you a couple of historical, uh, simple case studies. Everyone knows about uh, mobile phones, right? And now all the, in fact, why do we even call them mobile phones? Because telephony is the least used app that I use on my little pocket computer. <laughs> I, I, I use podcasts two hours a day at least. I use te telephony app maybe two hours a month, right? So why do we even call it a phone anymore? It's beyond me, but because it's everything but a phone. Uh, but the reality is the very first one with the screen on it took about uh, six years and $150 million to, to make. Uh, you know, men's razors uh, uh, have gone from one blade up to five or six blades now and all that style. The very first two-bladed razor that was developed took $200 million of investment to figure out. What? Yeah. Oh my yeah, God. $200 million. And, and so you think, how could a simple thing like that require so much investment? Well, here's the thing. 
no one had ever been able to make a, a, a razor thin enough to have two blades and not break and hurt the individual that was using it to shave. The invention of the processes to refine steel to that level of thinness and sharpness with flexibility and not being able to break housed in a new device of durable plastics and metals that would allow that to happen. You would think that would be easy, but it took $200 million to prove. So for larger scale businesses, things like that can be very risky because you, you could throw $200 million at something and never get the solution. Right. So, I mean, so, it, so for a small business operator, just scale that down to it's a $20,000 investment decision as opposed to uh, it's the same level of risk. It's like I'm risking so much that it's hard to recover if it, if it fails. That's why you need all, all of these geniuses at work with their everyday innovation skills helping you think through those problems. Yeah. I can guarantee you, and you ought, to probably get the, you ought to probably get their spouses involved, whether, uh, whether the spouse is a wife or a husband. Either way, you should bring them in because they've solved problems that you've never heard of before. So I, I'm an advocate of the more you can get, a, a, the more brain trust you can get thinking on your, on your team, the better off you Yeah, collective brainstorming. You know, we've talked about that everyday innovation. We've talked about long-term innovation and now the risk assessment. But one thing that I'm more curious about is what's your take on how innovation has changed due to multiple generations in the workforce? How do you think that has impacted the coming of the millennial crossing over with the, the baby boomer? How do you think that together they can work together to transform innovation or how they look at it? I, I think this is one of the most exciting arenas uh, to discuss about innovation that, that we can discuss. And the re- reason for it is this. Technology in my lifetime has transformed the world, especially the educational world and how children are learning, period. I can guarantee you, I would love to have had a pocket computer when I was uh, taking my engineering classes at university when I was a young man, rather than using a slide rule. And for those of you who are listening to this podcast that don't know what one is, look it up. Uh, (laughs) I don't know what it is. I don't know what a slide rule is. (laughs) To to be able to access the world's knowledge through a, a, a flat screen of multiple sizes, some stationary, some mobile, rather than having to go to the university library and hope that the article that I needed was there, which it never is, by the way, and stuff <laughs> like that. I mean, when I compare the access to it, so number one, we now have more generations that are at the same intellectual knowledge place than we've ever had before. It used to be that apprenticeship was the path towards mastery. And to some degree, that's still true. But apprentices today, if you want to think of a young person in business as an apprentice, they have more knowledge and more skill at current technology than the generations ahead of them. So the idea that bringing that youthful exuberance and that not yet world-tested knowledge that is already intellectually at a certain level with mine, to my long years of long-suffering, hard knocks and learn by mistakes kind of uh, mentality, 
is the best collision for faster innovation that, that this world's ever seen. We utilize it poorly, in my opinion. We do not take advantage of the intergenerational effects of this. How many generations, how many different generations can you name by name? Starting with the octogenarians. I mean, they're, they are the depression babies. There's still a few of them around in business, by the way. There's the people in my group, the, the baby boomers. What are the, what are the multiple generations after that? How would you name them? We have Gen X. Gen X. So, and millennial. Millennials. Oh, and I think is it Gen Z? Is that the next one? Yeah, Gen Z, I think, Gen is the one that's going to be coming in next. We love to name them. We don't even know what to name these next ones, but, but we're already naming them because we know what. When they come in, they will already know as much as we knew when we were 40. Well, and I think you hit on a good point. That's that's a great point. Sometimes it's very easy to think that innovation is limited to historical knowledge and experience. And it's not in any way to say that those don't have a high value because they do. But it is really exciting to know that people that don't have the prescribed notions or those defined rules and judgments about the way things were done, that you can really lean in and leverage those generations that may have a different point of view. And even, you know, again, even if you've heard that view before, maybe the first time you heard it, it wasn't the right time. But maybe now is the the right time. Precisely. So I'll give you an example of that. well, back in the 80s, I actually had a couple of buddies and I, because I'm a, I'm a nerd and I think, I think scholastically and I'm always deep in the academia and I'm just kind of one of those weird research junkie kind of guys, right? Uh, a couple of buddies of mine and I thought about, you know, uh, back in those days, carpooling was the big deal. You know, uh, to save the planet, you know, reduce on gasoline and stuff like that. If, you're, if your community didn't have good bus service or other sort of public transit, then carpool, right? And we actually thought, maybe what, instead of just carpooling for our friends, maybe we ought to just put up a poster at the local supermarket that says, you know, for 10 bucks a week, we'll, uh, we'll drive you to work on our way to work. Isn't that Uber? Right, absolutely. <laughs> Why did that idea not work? Because the people uh, that might have afforded that didn't have a technologically easy way to connect with us. So what happened? A new business model, that, that business model idea was floating back in the 80s. I like to think I thunk of it. Okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, right? And then write Uber a letter and let them know. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I, I need to let them know that I sent out the mental waves out in the universe. <laughs> they, they responded. But think about it. So a new business model could come into uh, could could literally come into being when the technology that that idea had technology to support. So that's my caution for all the older generation of people is is that the timing may not be right for several reasons. One of them maybe there's a technological advancement. Number two, maybe the young person is simply more willing to try harder. To make something work. Number three, they may have different connections than I ever can that could bring resources to the table. I mean, there's there's a multiple number of things that can happen that could lie, let that old idea actually become the new idea that would work this time. 
And so this not invented here or, gee, we've already tried that before kind of mentality uh, on, in the innovation course that people take uh, through Crestcom, if you'll remember the little uh, equation, that's part of the, de- uh, uh, the divisor. That's part of those arbitrary rules that I've already done that before. It doesn't work. That's an arbitrary rule. It, they need to regularly be reinspected because now that, that, that rule that we've discounted may now become a very valuable tool. And so you're exactly right about that, that letting those young people have more voice, simply inspiring the dialogue between the generations is the thing that we need to do more. And also looking at it from that perspective of today, instead of the rule being, we want to be risk averse. And so we want to avoid anything that we've done before that caused pain, failure, loss of resources, that today we can say, Instead of saying, we've already done that, tried it, it's not going to work, we can practice being curious and saying, what is another way to look at it, given the change in the economic landscape, the environment that we're operating in, the industry? And if you're a leader, whether you're a baby boomer or a millennial, it's important to know that it will be very natural for you to be that person that says, oh, we've already done that. Oh, I've seen that. Right? And we lean, in, we, we lean into that for the right reasons because we don't want to waste our time and resources. But when we're doing that, we can become roadblocks to the innovation process. We are the ones that can just prevent our own companies, organizations, teams, et cetera, et cetera, to move forward because we're just trying to play safe all the time. And it's not about being risky necessarily or high risk. It's about being aware that Things change over time and that there's always appropriate times to go back and look at it. Like even if you think at a basic level of like even how people dress, right? How we see that those habits continue to come back, that whether bell bottoms, they can come back or, you know, skinny jeans or any type of styles. Typically, when we look at them out in the future, we say, oh, yeah, that's really old. Like, we don't want that. And then all of a sudden, the future comes to us and we're, we're buying those, that, those looks. We want to be dressed fashionably and relevant to what's going on, even though if you asked us a year ago whether we would ever transition from a wider leg pant to a skinnier jean, we would have said, heck no, I can't believe people do that. And then they find themselves looking in their closet only to find 10 pairs of that pair of pants. Absolutely. You, you, you've so, you expressed that so well. And, and you've reminded me of uh, in my own life. Last fall, uh, my sons came over for Sunday evening dinner. They, they regularly do this. But I was pleased as I could be that the youngest pulled out his mobile device, pulled out his streaming music service and piped through uh, for the evening music as we had dinner, uh, a playlist of Sinatra songs. And I was just thrilled because he'd gotten into that music because of the quality of the music. This idea that things come around, they do. We recycle ideas all the time. The old becomes new, the new becomes old uh, every time. In fact, I'll come back to my original story. When my partner and I quit AT&T to start our own business, it was because AT&T couldn't imagine having a leadership institute that would be good enough that others would want to come to it Within 10 years of us leaving and starting our own business, 
AT&T, GE, and other large-scale uh, companies were competing over which one of their leadership uh, uh, training departments were best in class and had the most to offer to other people. Oh, no kidding. We were t- 10 years ahead of our time, and AT&T, for all of its, for all of its prowess, could not see the future outside old thinking technology. They couldn't see the sociological trend coming. It was outside their scope. Sometimes you've got to listen to youth to see the future. I love that. Yeah. I mean, and it's, again, going back to that earlier part, every person you meet can be your teacher and your student, right? And so that requires us to drop off ego and to say that, you know, yes, your experience is valued, but it's not necessarily always the right experience for where we are today if you're going to let your past success drive where you're going in the future. We want that diversity and thought and that scope and how we look at that. Uh, and, and from an academic standpoint, just to, just, just to bear this up uh, sort of uh, uh, more scientifically than just anecdotally. Uh, the research on this has been proven multiple multiple decades in a row. Okay, so I've been looking at this research for 30 years. So every decade it's reproven, right? What are the two most common sources of innovation in, in any organization, small or large? Two, two, uh, two sources of innovation that give you the most, the highest level of innovation. And they come from customers and from new employees because they haven't been trained to think your way yet. They come in with a way of thinking that's different, and that is gold for any business person that wants to take advantage of it. Right, well, and I love that you said the new employees, because how often is it that sometimes we get everyone in the door, we're so excited that they signed, that they signed the offer, and then we look at it as kind of like, oh, they're here now. And it's an untapped resource to give us an understanding of, hey, how are we perceived when you're this fresh set of eyes looking at these processes based on your experience? Is this an efficient way or is there a different way that we could look at it? You know, leveraging that instead of saying, oh, they're new and they have to go around the block to figure out what we know. It's saying, Oh my gosh, how can we use this before we corrupt your mind into our own way of thinking? And but I mean corrupt in a lovely way, right? Because we have to do that so we can all support the organizational mission. But yeah, how can we tap into that? Well, you know, Ed, I think that those are two great things to land on is knowing that, or to, excuse me, I should say to end on, because I've really, really loved our conversation about innovation, but really thinking about untapped resources. Who can you go to? to gain really valuable insights into the way you innovate or how you could innovate. And knowing that it's our customers, they'll buy with us or they won't buy. And that will be an indicator of where their preferences lie and what they want to see. And then our new employees, right? How they're looking at our business and how they can help to build and move our efforts forward. And we talked about a lot, right? Like really adopting innovation as an everyday thinking and that Essentially, anything that you're looking at is an opportunity to innovate, should you want to, right? We may not need to innovate a new way to tie our shoes unless that lace is broken. But knowing that all of those problems are really just opportunities to say, 
how could we approach this differently? To not say that, oh my gosh, you got it wrong, or oh my goodness, you made a mistake. It's, okay, this is another opportunity to look at this problem in a different way. And also, what's that vision and how are we going to get there? Who do we need to have involved and how can we extend that invitation to them to be involved in our innovative process? And I, I loved talking with you today. I loved our conversation. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it immensely. It's been a great <laughs> lot of fun for me. Thank you. No, I loved it. You know, the last question that we like to end all of our interviews on um, is really understanding you as a leadership development expert, someone that has experienced much success within their 30 years in the industry. What is your leadership habit that brings your success? Well, I, being the nerd, it's an easy answer. Uh, <laughs> uh, my mind is never ending research. Uh, you, uh, for for as much as I see that the landscape of leadership is, is has many very very stable features, we talk about the same things generation after generation. There's so much more to learn that's new and refreshing. And and that just that requires uh, research. For me, it's academic research. But I would recommend for others uh, just talk to other business people. Mm-hmm. Talk to people that aren't business people. You got a problem to solve. Uh, you know, if you're sitting in the uh, hair salon having your hair done, ask your uh, a stylist. You know, I was thinking about this problem I had. How would you handle it? You might be surprised what you could learn. Uh-huh. I love that. And it's a different way to connect. Exactly. (laughs) Which is so valuable. Well, Ron, thank you so much for taking your time to um, be interviewed by me for the Leadership Habit podcast on behalf of Crestcom and, you know, leaders everywhere. I'm just so excited that we had you on the show and we're able to kind of have that great high-level conversation and what we can do to look at innovation in a new way and especially how we can embrace the multi-generational workforce that we have to solve our innovative problems. So thank you so much for joining us today, Ron. I, we really enjoyed it, and we look forward to working with you again soon. Avec pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of The Leadership Habit. To find out more about Ron Crossland, connect with him on LinkedIn. Also, look for his books on Amazon or your favorite bookseller. You can find his book, Voice Lessons, Applying Science to the Art of Leadership Communication, or his book, The Leadership Experience, or The Leader's Voice, all from your favorite bookseller. 